Nehemiah chapter 1. Danny Murtaugh was the manager of the Pittsburgh Pirates when I was a young man following baseball. And I like what Danny once said. I like to have on my team that fellow who hits a home run every at bat, strikes out every batter, and throws perfectly to each base from the outfield. Any manager would want a guy like that. The only problem is, is to get him to put down his cup of beer and come down out of the stands and do those things. In other words, it's easier to criticize than it is to mobilize, to talk about it than to take action. And this is especially true in the church. The church today has far more pundits than we have players. We need men and women of action, men and women who will step up and serve. Nehemiah wasn't just a talker. Oh my, he was a doer. Nehemiah got off the sidelines and into the game. God called him to do a great work and he obeyed. Nehemiah led the third wave of Jewish patriots from their exile in Babylon back to Judah. You remember from our study in the book of Ezra, Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple. Ezra rebuilt the people. But it was Nehemiah who rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem. In verse 11, Nehemiah identifies himself, verse 11 of chapter 1, as the king's cupbearer. You know, in the United States, if you don't like the president, the most you have to live with him is eight years. And if you help spike the ballot box, you can get rid of him in four. But in a monarchy, if you had issues with the king, you had to live with him for a lifetime. And this was often more than the critics could bear. In an oriental court, it was too easy to bribe an official or to sneak in undercover and poison the king's punch. Thus, the cupbearer was the king's first line of defense. If the wine was laced with deadly hemlock, he would be the first to know about it. Needless to say, the cupbearer, Nehemiah, had to be a trusted man and an honest man. And thankfully, Nehemiah's services were never needed. Chapter 1 begins with a person, a place, and a date. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, he came to pass in the month of Chislev, which on our calendar would be from mid-November through mid-December. This was in the 20th year. This was the 20th year of the reign of one of Persia's most famous emperors, Artaxerxes Longimanus. The exact year was 444 B.C. Nehemiah mentions his location at the time. I was in Shushan, the citadel. Shushan was a tropical, warm-weather getaway about 250 miles east of Babylon near the mouth of the Persian Gulf in what is today Iran. At the time of the Persian Empire, Susa, or Shushan, served as the winter residence for the royal family. Now, according to Nehemiah, it was while he was in Shushan that Hananah, one of the brethren, came with men from Judah and asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. Now, it had been 90 years since Zerubbabel had led the first wave of Jews back from Babylon to their homeland of Jerusalem. Nehemiah is asking for a progress report. How are things going? How's the work progressing? And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. And this was all the information that Nehemiah needed. For if there were no walls, nothing else would have been done. You see, a city's walls afforded it protection and allowed that city to prosper. Without walls, the city would stay in rubble. The city would lie in ruins. Nehemiah loved his God, his nation, and his city. At stake was the future of his people, not to mention the glory of his God. Work needed to be done. These walls needed to be rebuilt. This news upset Nehemiah. It shook him up, no pun intended. It hit him like a ton of bricks. Nehemiah tells us in verse 4, 
So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, hey, Nehemiah is a nice guy with a nice job in a nice place, working for a nice man, drawing a nice salary until suddenly God rocks his world. Get the picture. Our man, Nehemiah, he has it made. He is a Hebrew living in the king's palace. He sips the king's chardonnay. He eats the king's food. He wipes his mouth on the king's napkin. Nehemiah occupies a prestigious position. He is on the Persian payroll. He is a powerful man, and he enjoys a luxurious lifestyle. I picture Nehemiah footloose and fancy free, not a care in the world. This cup bearer's cup is full of blessing until one day God spikes his cup of blessing with a burden. God adds a burden to Nehemiah's blessing. Suddenly, Nehemiah not only bears the king's cup, but he bears the Lord's burden. He goes from contented to restless, from glad-hearted to grieving. We're told here he mourned for many days. And I believe this is what God wants to do in the life of every single believer. He has a specific plan for your life. He has a task he wants you to accomplish. He has a burden for you to bear. Like Nehemiah, God has blessed you and me in a million zillion ways. But now he wants to add a specific burden to his blessing. He wants to send you on a mission for God. I've heard it put, life's heaviest burden is having nothing to carry. A burden from God allows you to participate in kingdom construction, to have an impact for eternity. And that is the opportunity that God gives to Nehemiah. But notice what Nehemiah does when he receives this God-given burden. He immediately bathes it in prayer, verse 5. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven. Now, as I said earlier, Nehemiah is a man of action. He is a can-do guy. He would have made a good Marine. But he understands that waiting on God always precedes working for God. When God places a call on your life, it may be to teach Sunday school or maybe to gather up a group of middle school girls and help disciple them in the Lord or perhaps grab some teenage boys and teach them what you know or maybe take a new Christian under your wing, whatever that burden might be. When God places a call on your life, the first thing to do is to put a call into God. Rather than rush out and act immediately, Nehemiah puts his burden on his heart's rotisserie and then just sort of turns it over and over in prayer. He waited until his heart was right, until the time was right, until then he just sat tight and he prayed. And here's how he prays. Oh, great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. He reminds himself that God is great and gracious, awesome and merciful. He continues in verse six. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Notice what Nehemiah says in verse 6. To me, this is astounding. He says, I have sinned. Now, he could have blamed the Jews that God judged. They would have never gone to Babylon had the, his forefathers been wicked and done evil in the land. The city was destroyed because of their rebellion. He could have blamed the Jews who had already been in the land for the last 90 years. Why hasn't more progress been made? He could have blamed Ezra the priest. You remember, he left for Jerusalem 13 years earlier. What's he been doing all this time? Instead, Nehemiah admits the situation is his fault. I have sinned. Instead of critiquing others, Nehemiah looks inward. If he had returned earlier, perhaps he could have helped with the work. 
Instead, he had chosen to stay behind and live in luxury in Shushan. Nehemiah knows a vital truth about leadership. If you want to be part of the solution, you first need to admit your part in the problem. It's been said no snowflake in an avalanche ever feels responsible. Most people go to great efforts to duck responsibility, but not the leader. A leader refuses to play the blame game. Jerusalem's walls might not have been in shambles if Nehemiah had returned earlier. He says, I have sinned. And then in verse 8, remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. God had told Moses that he would scatter a disobedient people. And scatter them he did, back to Babylon. But he also promised that he would bring back a repentant people. And if the Jews returned to God, he would work again in Israel. Nehemiah finishes his prayer. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. God had kept his promise to scatter them. And now God is going to keep his promise to gather them again. Verse 11. Oh Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. As the chapter closes, notice those phrases, this day and this man. Nehemiah gets more specific in his prayer. He's now praying for an opportunity. You know, it's true, praying to God and waiting on God always precede working for God. But you do get to a point once you've prayed that it's time to take a step of faith. You always get to that point when it's time to act. You've prayed enough. Now it's time to do something. And that time is nearing for Nehemiah. He closes chapter one with the reminder, for I was the king's cupbearer. And it's his close proximity to the king that sets up chapter two. Once though, there was a cardinal that landed on the windowsill next to the yellow canary in the cage. This red cardinal, he looked at the canary and he asked him, he said, What's the purpose of your life? The canary answered, My purpose in life is to eat seed. The cardinal said, What for? He said, So I can be strong. What for? So I can sing. Well, why do you sing? So I can get more seed. The cardinal thought for a minute and he shook his head in disbelief. He said, Now let me get this straight. You eat seed to be strong so you can sing, so you can get more seed to eat. This doesn't make sense. The canary says, well, that's my life. Finally, the cardinal said to the canary, you know, I believe there's more to you than that. And if you'll follow me, I'll help you find it. But first, you must leave your cage. And that is exactly what God is saying to you and me. There is more to life than going to work to make money, to buy food, to become strong so that we can go to work again the next day. Guys, follow Jesus and he will lead you to a kingdom purpose. He will add to your cup of blessing a burden, something that you can do for him. But to follow Jesus, you must be willing to leave your cage. In chapter two, Nehemiah leaves his cage. Verse one. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, which would have been mid-March to mid-April on our calendar, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Now remember, when Nehemiah heard the news of Jerusalem, chapter 1, verse 1 told us that it was in the month, the Hebrew month of Chislev, which was mid-November to mid-December. So evidently, four months have elapsed After hearing of the trouble in Jerusalem and sensing a God-given burden to act, Nehemiah still waits 120 days before he steps out. Again, he knows that God's work needs to be done in God's time. You remember years earlier, God had revealed 
the exact day that the Messiah would present himself to Israel to Daniel. You remember that prophecy? Daniel chapter 9, the prophecy of the 70 weeks. Daniel said that predicted 69 sets of seven years. And ultimately, this prophecy would point to the very day that Jesus would ride his donkey down the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem, April the 6th, 32 AD. But this amazing prophecy had a launch date. It started, and I quote, with the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, the street shall be built again and the wall. In other words, Daniel's prophecy was tied to Nehemiah's request to build the walls. Nehemiah may not have realized it, but the four months that he had waited on God were actually God was using them to fulfill this prophecy. If Nehemiah had forced the issue, he would have wrecked Daniel's prophecy. God often has reasons that we know nothing about. The reason he calls on us to wait, the reason his time is not right, sometimes he doesn't tell us. This is why Isaiah 28 verse 16 describes true faith. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Well, when the day finally arrives, wine was before the king, and I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore, the king said to me, why is your face sad? Since you are not sick, this is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid. See, part of the cupbearer's job was to cheer the king. You know, you tell a funny story, tell one of Pastor Sandy's jokes, you know, make the king laugh. That was part of his job. And that meant a gloomy cupbearer. Oh my, he was in danger. He might have his head on the chopping block. Nehemiah's sadness proves that he can't harbor a God-given burden for very long without it affecting your disposition and your demeanor. You can't. When God lays something on your heart, you can wait, you can pray, but eventually you got to do something and it'll drive you nuts. Nehemiah is visibly disturbed. He can't hide his sorrow any longer. And the king notices that something is bugging his cupbearer. And Nehemiah answers him, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Well, he just spills the beans. Nehemiah realized the time has come to approach the king about what God has laid on his heart. Verse four says, then the king said to me, what do you request? And so I prayed to the God of heaven. I like what one Bible commentator writes. He says, before answering the king, it was essential for Nehemiah to speak briefly to someone else. Nehemiah shoots up a real short, succinct, spontaneous kind of prayer, a cry for help, a spiritual SOS, you might call it. One commentator said, calls it Nehemiah's arrow prayer. He just kind of shot an arrow up into the sky. I like to call it a flare prayer. That's what it was. Nehemiah just suddenly shoots this flare up into the sky. So I pray to the God of heaven. It's one of those prayers we launch at times. God, help me. And it's a prayer, by the way, that God answers. I hope you realize your prayers don't have to be long to be effective. God answers that little SOS prayer, that little help me God kind of prayer. You remember Jesus said of the Pharisees, they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. In other words, it's not the length of your prayer that counts, but the strength of your prayer that counts. I do think it's important, though, to recall that Nehemiah now has been fasting and praying for four months. This flare prayer comes after a concentrated season of determined prayer. But the prayer that makes it to heaven is not necessarily the one that consists of lots of words. Rather, it's the one made up of a lot of heart. I like the saying, short prayers will make it to heaven if the person who prays them doesn't live too far away. Recently, I read of a true story that came out of Los Angeles. A woman was upstairs in her bedroom and she heard someone breaking into the house. She crawled under her bed with her phone and she called 911. But for some reason, the emergency system was having a problem. It gave her a menu of options. 
realizing that this was going to take more than a minute or two, her mind raced for other ways to reach the police. She grabbed the phone book next to her bed and she called the nearest Winchell's Donut Shop. And she asked the employee if there were police officers present. The employee said, of course, we've got several right here eating donuts. An officer was put on the line and the frightened woman told her of her problem. He arrived at the house in time to catch the thief. Hey, the good thing about God is you never have to worry about him being out eating donuts. (laughs) He is always on the line. Hey, even better than 911, just dial G-O-D, all right? Nehemiah says to the king in verse 5, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Nehemiah might not have been expecting it, but here's the opportunity he's been looking for. And he has the presence of mind to jump on it. When you see an opportunity, act, jump on it. A funny story is told of Bear Bryant when he coached at Kentucky years ago. The Wildcats were playing Tennessee when a runner fumbled the ball close to the bench. In a mad scramble, someone over on the bench kicked over a box of eight more footballs. They all tumbled out onto the field. A free-for-all ensued. As it turns out, Tennessee recovered five footballs and Kentucky recovered four footballs. The referee, not knowing which was the original football, gave possession to Tennessee. They had five to Kentucky's four. Here's the moral of the story. When the ball bounces your way, jump on it. Make sure you grab it. When an opportunity presents itself, seize it. That's what Nehemiah did. Verse 6. Then the king said to me, and the queen was also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be, and when will you return? And why does Nehemiah mention the fact that the queen was sitting beside the king? We're not really sure, are we? Unless perhaps for some reason the queen was particularly fond of Nehemiah. Maybe she had befriended him in some way. Maybe he was one of her favorites. Perhaps she was nudging her husband, you know, trying to, you know, whispering in his ear, go ahead and help Nehemiah with this venture, which would prove, which would prove, gentlemen, that God can even speak to you through your wife's nudge. Amazing. And so it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Nehemiah is on a roll. He senses that God's hand is on this exchange between he and the king. If the king is willing to give him permission, why wouldn't the king be willing to give me some supplies? Hey, always remember, real faith is not afraid to ask, and that's what Nehemiah does in verse 7. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, the river Euphrates, that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city wall, and for the house that I will occupy. Now, this is a bold move on Nehemiah's part. Nehemiah asks the king not just for permission to return, but for the supplies he's going to need to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He wants the king to finance the project. How's that for a bold request? I'll never forget late one night, We were at the Dallas-Fort Worth airport on our way back from a pastor's conference we had attended out in California. Pastor James and Jeff, Kevin, myself, we were all sitting there in the concourse waiting on our connection flight back to Atlanta. And we were all kind of tired and and rather sleepy and we're sitting there and, and all of a sudden Jeff jumps up and he walks over to the ticket counter and he's talking to the girl and and he comes back and he says, I'm flying first class. I said, what do you mean you're flying first class? Well, I just went up and asked if I could have a first-class ticket, and she gave me one. She says, you're kidding. Well, I'm still trying to process it, and Kevin jumps up. And he goes up to the counter, and he's back with a first-class ticket. And then James jumps up, and he goes to the counter, and he's back with a first-class ticket. Well, I'm the senior pastor. I need a first-class ticket. 
And so I went up and asked for a first. Hey, we all flew back from Dallas that night sitting in first class. And it was all because someone was daring enough to ask. Are you daring enough to ask God for something special, for a first class ticket? Is it possible that some of us are riding our lives out in coach because we are not bold enough to ask God for a first class ticket? Ask God. He's a loving father. He's gracious. He wants to give good gifts to his kids. We're told what happened to Nehemiah. The king granted them his request. He granted them to me according to the good hand of my God, which was upon me. Verse 9 tells us, Then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. The king even provides Nehemiah military escort. Persian troops are his bodyguard. And it was all because he wasn't afraid to ask. But a royal entourage riding into town is going to get some attention. It's going to raise some eyebrows. And that's why Nehemiah's presence and the party he's traveling with stir up some opposition. Notice what happens in verse 10. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. We're going to talk about these guys in a minute. But these guys were the forerunners of the Samaritans. They had occupied the land and they had rose to prominence while the Jews were in exile in Babylon. But now their Jews are coming back and they don't like it. And their opposition is going to make it tough on Nehemiah to fulfill his mission. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Now, after 900 miles, and who knows how many days and weeks it took to get there, Nehemiah finally arrives in Jerusalem. And notice the first move that Nehemiah makes. It's been a long, grueling journey. So once he hits town, he does nothing for three days. Apparently, he takes some time to rest. I think that's important. Physical fatigue and tiredness can cloud our judgment. To begin a task when you're tired is dangerous. You know, it's been said, the bow that's always bent ceases to shoot straight. That's why you got to relax the string from time to time. You've got to take those days of rest. You remember, even Jesus went on personal retreats and took days out to rest. In Mark 6, verse 31, after a busy season of activity, Jesus invited his disciples, come apart by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. You know, it's so true. If we don't learn to come apart, we will come apart. Like Nehemiah, we need to renew our strength. Sometimes when I'm tired, the most spiritual thing that I can do is to take a nap. Case in point this afternoon. I came home and put my head down on the pillow. and I had the presence of mind to set the alarm. It was a good thing. <laughs> I'd still be sleeping. <laughs> Before we go further, let me alert you to some typological meaning here in Nehemiah. This is really cool. When Nehemiah rides into Jerusalem, notice what he comes with. Three things. He comes with letters, permission to do this work. He comes with lumber, and he comes, of course, with leadership. Understand the name Nehemiah means comforter of Jehovah. And who in the New Testament did Jesus refer to as our comforter? The Holy Spirit, exactly. Nehemiah is a fascinating type of the Holy Spirit. Hey, Jesus wants to rebuild the walls of our lives. Some of us have been beaten up. Our lives have been torn down. We are in ruins because of the sin either has been inflicted upon us or that we've been involved in. Our emotional stability, our spiritual health, our personal character, our sense of dignity, our relational happiness, our presence of mind. For some of us, it's been torn down. It's been beat up, and it needs to be built back up. We need to rebuild the walls of our lives. 
Understand, Jesus' intention for you is to help you rebuild those walls. Jesus is your Nehemiah. The Holy Spirit is your Nehemiah. On the cross, Jesus financed the operation, just as the king, Artaxerxes, financed Nehemiah's operation. But the king sent an agent, Nehemiah, to help with the work. And though Jesus has financed the reconstruction of your life on the cross, he sends a foreman, a job steward, to help with the work, to accomplish it on sight in your life. And who is that worker? The Holy Spirit. Absolutely. The Spirit's objective in our lives is to fill in the gaps and repair the damage that sin has caused. And like Nehemiah, the Holy Spirit also, He comes with three tools. First of all, the letters. Your permission to start over. What is that? That's God's Word, these black and red letters. This is the book that gives you permission to start your life over, to know you're forgiven, to stake the claim that you've been forgiven and that you're in Christ Jesus. You have permission to start over through these letters. Also, the Holy Spirit brings the lumber, the supplies. And what are those? They're the gifts and the blessings of the Holy Spirit. Spiritual gifts, spiritual blessings are ours in Christ Jesus. These are the things we use to rebuild our lives. And then third, through the Holy Spirit, we get leadership. The Holy Spirit begins to lead us. He begins to guide us. He knows our hearts better than we do. And he knows exactly where we need to get fixed and where we need to get fit. Through God's truth and God's blessing and God's guidance, we can rebuild the walls of our lives. The Holy Spirit comes with letters and with lumber and with leadership, just as Nehemiah did. Verse 12, Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do. Now here's a mark of good leadership. God is putting a plan in place. The organization Nehemiah hatches is not his own scheme. He says in verse 12, God had put it in my heart. I like how the New English Bible puts it. What my God was prompting me to do. God is filling the heart and mind of Nehemiah with all kinds of creative ideas. But Nehemiah keeps his cards close to his vest until he's ready to act. He arose at night and only with a few men did he take with him. Here's what I've discovered. When a leader walks around mumbling half-cocked plans and half-baked ideas, people label him a dreamer, or worse, a babbler, and they lose confidence in his leadership. This is why Nehemiah doesn't open his mouth until he is sure of what God wants him to do. Only a few trusted confidants were with him on this nighttime stroll. He says, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. He was trying to low-key this walk around the wall. He wants to survey the damage without drawing a lot of public attention. Nehemiah needs to finish his plan before he proceeds. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which were burned with fire. Nehemiah now sees firsthand what he's up against. And I'm sure it was such a shock to see the devastation that up until now he had only heard about. You know, the Hebrew word translated viewed in verse 13, and it's used again in verse 15. It's actually a medical term. It means probing a wound to see the extent of the damage. Nehemiah is inspecting this wall in detail. The right remedy is dependent on a good diagnosis. From the gates and the landmarks he mentions, it seems that Nehemiah starts out on the west side of Jerusalem and he walks counterclockwise, first south, then east, then north, then back to where he started. And though it was night, though it was dark, Nehemiah had a lot more vision than a lot of men see in the light of day. This man could see what needed to be done and what had to be accomplished. He says in verse 14, then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. In other words, the rubble was so thick, the path was so cluttered that Nehemiah had to trudge the rest of the way on foot. And so I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall, 
Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. Verse 16. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. Nehemiah keeps all his plans under his hat, his hard hat, I guess you could say. And in keeping with the analogy of the work of the Holy Spirit, I hope you realize that the Spirit of the living God has taken many a nighttime stroll around the walls of your life. The Bible teaches us that the Spirit searches the thoughts and the intents of the heart. He exposes areas of our lives in need of repair and in need of refurbishment. The Holy Spirit knows where you need to be fixed and how you need to be fit. Finally, in verse 17, Nehemiah addresses the Jews. He reveals his plan. Then I said to them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And notice Nehemiah's appeal is along two lines. First, he points to the people's distress. Second, he appeals to God's glory among the nations. The condition of the walls of the city of God have brought shame to his name. It has injured his reputation. In essence, Nehemiah is saying to the citizens of Jerusalem, let's rebuild these walls for our good and for God's glory. It was a convincing rationale. This is why we need to build the walls of our lives. This is why we need to build strong walls within our church for our good and also for God's glory. I also love the directness here of Nehemiah. He shoots straight. He cuts right to the chase. Peterson's paraphrase captures the force of Nehemiah's appeal to the Jews. It reads like this. Face it, we're in a bad way here. Jerusalem is a wreck. Its gates are burned up. Come, let's build the wall of Jerusalem and not live with this disgrace any longer. Boy, that's what Nehemiah was saying. You know, a good leader doesn't gloss over the issues. You know, he doesn't try to put a good face on a bad situation just so everybody can walk away feeling good. When he recognizes a problem, he exposes it and he presents a solution. Nehemiah continues, And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, Let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. The Jews make a commitment to do their part in this project. You know, every work of God consists of two parts. There is God's part and there is our part. It's been said, we can't do God's part and God won't do our part. A work of God is always a tag team venture. God plays the leading role, but we also have a part to play. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says it succinctly, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. God works in us to produce our work for God. Always remember, there are two parts to a work of God. There's God's part, and that's most important. But then there's also a part for us to play, and we need to be faithful we need to set our hand to the good work God calls us to do. Chapter 2 closes with the three stooges. Here they are. No, no, no. Not Curly, Larry, and Moe, but Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arab. In verse 19, Nehemiah tells us, they laughed at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? Now these men are going to be Nehemiah's nemesis throughout the construction. Their assaults begin with mockery, but their opposition becomes more intense as progress is made. Understand, Nehemiah's mission was a threat to all three of these men, but for different reasons. Sanballat was a Samaritan whose political ambitions would be curtailed by a fortified Jerusalem and a Jewish presence there. Tobiah was an Ammonite with connections among the Jews. 
He had ties and influences even among the priests that are about to be snipped by Nehemiah. Geshem was a rich Arab whose trade and his business interest in Jerusalem would have been upset by a strong Jewish city. So each of these guys, they have their own agenda. They probably didn't agree on anything else except for their hatred of Nehemiah and for the Jews. They become a unified opposition against Nehemiah. Initially, they mock him, but they will eventually do far more. And I hope you know that when you begin to participate in a mission for God, expect opposition. Somebody once said, if you don't believe in the devil, just try serving the Lord for a while. Nehemiah rarely felt the devil's fury in the cozy confines of that Persian palace. But now, as he decides to bear a burden for God, an intense battle begins to rage around him. In verse 20, Nehemiah stands up to his enemies. I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build, but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Sounds like a Marine, doesn't he? We're going to kick butt. Hey, a good leader refuses to be intimidated by the sneers and jeers of the opposition. Notice Nehemiah countered opposition with position. He knew God's promises, didn't he? The Jews had a God-given right to rebuild and occupy Jerusalem. Sanballat and his cronies had no jurisdiction whatsoever. He knew God's promises. That's what gave him power. And guys, this is how we need to respond to our enemy, Satan. Know who you are in Christ. Know your position in Christ. When we're assured of our rights and privileges as a child of God, we can stake our claim. We can stand our ground. We can resist the enemy's threats. Like Nehemiah, you and I, we counter opposition with position. Now chapter 3 reveals that Nehemiah was not only a motivator, but he was an organizer. Nehemiah knew the answer to the riddle, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. And this was his plan for this colossal undertaking of rebuilding the walls. He divided the walls into one bite at a time, into small sections. And then he assigned each of these sections to a different family. Again, Nehemiah is a type of the Holy Spirit. And one of the ministries of the Spirit is to help you and I find our place in the body of Christ. The Spirit bestows upon us callings and ministries and gifts. And then he assigns us a place on the wall where we can be of help building the kingdom. God wants every Christian to be on the wall in their place, not off the wall. Chapter 3. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They built as far as the Tower of the Hundred and consecrated it, then as far as the Tower of Hananiel. Next to Eliashib, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zakur, the son of Emery built, and on it goes. Each family had their place on the wall. Be on the wall. Find your place and get to work. Be on the wall, not off the wall. And don't beat your head against the wall. Be on the wall. Notice verse 5. Next to them, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of the Lord. What a poor example. These guys were prima donnas. These leaders down from Tekoa, they weren't willing to lift a finger. They were allergic to hard work. The Tekoites, they worked, but not their leaders, sad to say. Verse 8. Next to him, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs. Also next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs. And they fortified Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. It's interesting, the broad wall was part of the wall that was built by King Hezekiah. And it's still intact today, at least a portion of it. You can go to Jerusalem with Pastor Sandy on his next trip, and you can see the broad wall, right in the heart of the old city of Jerusalem. Notice, too, these men who melted gold and who made jewelry, 
these men who were skilled in combining spices and oils to make sweet scents and perfumes, now suddenly they pick up hard hats and picks and shovels and trowels. And they go to work. It just made sense to go to work on the wall. You know, at times we have to set aside what we like to do in order to do what needs to be done. That's true in the church often. There's all kinds of things we want to do, but what needs to be done? That's why they set aside their jewelry making and their perfume making, and they got to work on the wall. Notice verse 10. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumpa. Boy, I don't know. I'm going to have to apologize to him when I get to heaven. Harumop. I could say that 10 times. It'd be different every time, you know. This Jediah, he made repairs in front of his house. Notice this. He didn't go down the street. He didn't go to the other side of the city. Notice he started to work in front of his own house. Has it ever dawned on you that the first place God wants you serving Him, the first place you need to get serious about being a Christian and a follower of Jesus, is in your own house? Being a better son, being a better daughter, being a better wife to your husband or a better husband to your wife. That's where it starts. Being a better parent to your kids or being a better kid to your parents. That's where it all starts, guys. They started the work in front of their own house. Howard Hendricks used to say, if your Christianity doesn't work at home, don't export it. Verse 12, and next to him was Shalom, the son of Holahesh, leader of half the district of Jerusalem, he and his daughters made repairs. Notice next to Shalom, his kids worked alongside him. Notice this. This is a smart guy. He got his family involved serving the Lord with him. He and his daughters, they worked together. That's great. Several years ago, Discipleship Magazine ran an article It was entitled, Making Ministry a Family Affair. Here's an excerpt. Busy schedules and the stresses of life tend to pull family members apart, but serving Christ together in a ministry produces a strong bond that holds family members together. I think this is important. The family that serves together stays together. Find ways to serve the Lord alongside your spouse and kids, and it might add great meaning to your family life. Skip down to verse 26. Moreover, the Nethanim who dwelt in Ophel made repairs as far as the place in front of the water gate toward the east. You remember the Nethanim, they were the servants of the temple. They were sort of the temple water boys. They were the guys that carried water and kept the laver full. And thus, notice, they lived near the water gate. That makes sense. And so it was there that they worked on the wall. I understand that Rabbi Nixon also supervised some work near the water gate several years ago. Verse 27, After them the Tekoites repaired another section next to the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. You remember the men of Tekoa? Minus their leaders? They had already built a portion of the wall back near the fish gate. Verse 5, here they pulled some double duty. They finished early, and so rather than go and sip lemonade, they decided to tackle another section of the wall. Verse 32, and between the upper room at the corner, as far as the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants made repairs. And here we are, back where we started. He began at the sheep gate. He went west, counterclockwise, Here's what he did. Verse 3, the fish gate. Verse 6, the old gate. Verse 13, the valley gate and refuse gate. Verse 15, the fountain gate. Verse 26, the water gate. Verse 28, the horse gate. Verse 29, the east gate. Verse 31, the mikkod gate or the inspection gate. And the question arises, why did he go in this order? Now remember, There are no accidents with the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus said, In the volume of the book, it is written of me. In other words, 
You can look on any page in Scripture, and guess who you'll find if you look hard enough? You'll find Jesus. In the volume of the book, it was written of Jesus. Jesus is everywhere in this book. You just have to look for him, including Nehemiah chapter 3. Notice this. Pay attention. Notice that order that we just went through in chapter 3. The Christian life starts at the sheep gate. You embrace Jesus as your sacrifice. As the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, your sins are covered through His sacrifice. The Christian life begins. Next, you go to the fish gate. Because the first thing Jesus says to you is He wants you to be a fisher of men. He's called you to share with others what He's done in your life. Then you go to the old gate. And you go back to this book. And you start studying the unchangeable truths of God's Word at the old gate. And then there are times when we find ourselves in the valley gate and we need encouragement. We're a little down. Invariably, that takes us to the refuse gate where we have to toss out some garbage from our lives, where we have to look at some of the garbage and trash that's piled up that we need to get rid of. And that's when, once we've done that, that's when the Holy Spirit refreshes us at the fountain gate. And his joy begins to bubble up again in our hearts. We're cleansed with the water of the word at the water gate. And then we find strength at the horse gate. And the journey continues on and on for you and I as Christians until Jesus returns. For when he does, he will set his foot down on the Mount of Olives, the scripture says, and he will enter Jerusalem through what gate? The eastern gate. And there he will judge the nations at the inspection gate or the Mifkat gate. Hey, embedded in Nehemiah chapter 3, you find a wall-to-wall account of the story of the Bible right here in this chapter. But here's the take-home lesson in Nehemiah chapter 3. God is building strong walls at Calvary Chapel. And each one of us has a place in that work. Hey, if the wall is 95% complete, but there's one small crack, then we're still vulnerable. Wild beasts or foreign invaders or false doctrine can get in and wreak havoc. That's why every one of us has to close in the gaps, has to find our place on the wall and be about the work God has called us to do. If there's a gap, it endangers the whole of the body. That's why every one of you is important. And every member of this church should be a minister of this church. Let me close with a great quote that makes this point. Even though my keyboard is an old model, it works very well except for one key. You'd think with all the other keys functioning properly, one key not working would not be noticed. But just one key out of whack seems to ruin the whole effort. You may say, well, I am only one person. No one will ever notice if I don't quite do my best. But it does make a difference because to be an effective church needs active participation by everyone to the best of his or her ability. So the next time you think you're not important, remember my keyboard. You are a key person.